0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Acts 17, starting with verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. God, we pray, please open our eyes to understand your truth and prepare us, Lord, through the preaching of your word to be eager to speak the truth to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I saw a news story on Channel 8 News, Channel 8, the Indianapolis television station. And um, Channel 8 News discovered that there is $350 million of unclaimed assets that are in the possession of the state of Indiana. Uh, The state of Indiana might owe you some money. You can go to the website of the state of Indiana and and find out. $350 million waiting to be claimed. And uh, this news team from Channel 8 decided that they would try to track down some Of these people to to let them know. And so they got a list of names and um, tried to find them. And there was uh, one woman named Harriet Green who they discovered. She was 97 years old and she was owed $50,000 due to some stock options in her family. She just didn't know the money belonged to her and the state had it. So... These reporters um, found her address, <clears throat> they went to her home, and they found out that Harriet had died nine days earlier. A 97-year-old woman died without ever knowing $50,000 was waiting for her. And when I heard that story, I thought, what, what a really good picture of evangelism that is. There are spiritual riches waiting for people. The riches of knowing that your sins can be forgiven, that you can have eternal life, relationship with God, a resurrected body when Jesus returns, those are awaiting for people just for the taking. Now, it's not owed to people. I know the analogy breaks down. It's not owed to people, but it's there for the taking. And you and I are called to go out and tell people about this to tell them the spiritual riches that are awaiting them if they place faith in Jesus, and we're called to do this, to get the message out before people die. That's really the crux of it. People die. We live in a fallen world. The Bible says that it is appointed for men to die once and then to face judgment. At that point, time is up. This is an urgent task for us, evangelism. This is not just an optional thing. There should be a sense of urgency in our hearts and minds to make sure that the gospel gets to those people that God has placed in our paths. And so that's why as a church we value evangelism. We think this is very important. We want to get the gospel to people. We want to help you and train you to be able to do that. And that's why we're doing this sermon series, Telling the Truth in a Postmodern Age. We're spending four Sundays talking about evangelism. This is the third of the four Sundays. And what I'm doing is taking seven principles from a guy named Jerem Bards. He's a professor of mine back at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He's come up with these seven principles, and they're all based in this passage on Acts chapter 17. So that's why we've been in this passage each of these four Sundays, taking all of these principles from this same passage. Seven principles uh, over four sermons. So let me review with you where we have been. Uh, These principles are, are given to us so that. Uh, we can present the gospel in a way that will hopefully make people listen. Because there's something else about this Channel 8 news story is that as they sought to, to get in contact with the other people who were owed money, they couldn't find anybody. They couldn't get anybody to listen. And that can be a challenge with evangelism sometimes. Sometimes we people won't hear us or we don't find it's easy to find the opportunity. Well, these principles are given so that as we deliver the gospel to people, it will help them, encourage them to to respond, to listen. So, here's where we've been. Seven principles. The first, always show respect. When we're sharing the gospel with others, we need to respect the people that we're talking to, no matter how much you might object to their worldview, no matter how much you might disagree with them, no matter how argumentative they might be, no matter how much they might disrespect your worldview, you are to show respect to people. That's what Peter calls us to do, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. Second principle, seek to build bridges. Look for connecting points with people. Look for the things that you can agree with in people's worldview before you look for the things you disagree with. I think a lot of times Christians get that exactly backwards. We look for the things to disagree with. We try to start an argument. But if you seek The connecting point, the things you have in common, you can share that with the person and begin to build upon that to get to Jesus and the gospel and how people can be saved. So seek to build bridges. The third principle is understanding what others believe. That is taking the time to get to know people, to ask them questions, uh, to listen to them, to uh, listen before you speak. Francis Schaeffer, we talked about last week, he said if, you've got, if you have 60 minutes to talk with a person, spend 55 of those minutes asking questions and then use that last five minutes to speak into that person's life in a meaningful and intelligent way. I think a lot of Christians get it exactly opposite. We'll talk for 55 and then we'll listen for five. But if we're going to speak meaningfully to people, we need to know where they're coming from and so we need to seek to understand what they believe. Now, that's what that video that you just saw was all about. That video was uh, telling us about these cards. They're called Perspectives Cards. Crew has developed these. And these are tools that you can use to get into a conversation with someone to discover what they believe. Very well done. Um, You uh, present them to people, and they can choose what they believe about human nature and what they believe about God and what they believe about Jesus and the meaning of life. And they're just an excellent way to get into a give-and-take conversation with somebody. Uh, and to hear what they have to believe. So, we want you to know that this is not just something that we're doing in the abstract here, principles of evangelism, but we want to equip you and show you specifically how you can engage your friends and family and co-workers in evangelistic conversations. So, on Wednesday night, October 23rd, we're going to offer an evangelism workshop. Josh Halliwell is going to teach that. Josh was the guy who was here leading us in confession and assurance. And he's going to show us how to use these perspectives cards Uh, how to break them out, how to communicate with people uh, with this tool. And there's other tools that he'll talk about as well. But this is a free workshop, and I highly encourage you to attend so this isn't just something in our brains. It's not just a bunch of theology, but something we're actually doing and looking for opportunities to do. So that's where we've been. Those are the three principles we've covered so far. Today, two more principles. The fourth and the fifth principle we'll deal with today. And the fourth principle is this. We need to be... Careful in evangelism to speak the right language. We need to be careful to avoid talking to unbelievers in a way that might confuse or alienate them. And this is what Paul does. I'm going to show you here in Acts 17 that Paul is very careful about this. He makes some very careful choices of words and phrases as he speaks to the Athenians as a way of connecting with them. Um, so just very quick review. Um, Paul here, Acts 17, he's in Athens, right? Athens, Greece, same Athens that exists today. Great intellectual capital, Socrates, Plato, spent a lot of time there. Paul arrives in Athens alone. Verse 16, he looks around, he sees all these idols, and he's just provoked, he's distressed, he's full of anguish as he sees this place that's smothered in idolatry. And so from there, he goes into the marketplace, into the synagogue. He starts (coughs) talking with people about the gospel And as people hear him, they say, wow, this guy's got some interesting things to say. Let's get him before the Areopagus. And so they take him before this council, this very prestigious group of people who are moral, religious, philosophical experts. They bring Paul before this council and ask him to give a defense of the gospel before this group. And so that's kind of the context of what's going on here in Acts chapter 17. But I want to show you some places here where Paul is very careful about the language that he uses. Look at verse 29. Now here's Paul talking to the Areopagus. And look what he says. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Now that phrase, divine being, is very interesting. It's not a phrase that Paul normally uses. It's not a phrase that the Bible normally uses uses. I mean, Paul very easily, when he's referring to God here, he could say Yahweh, or the God of Israel, or Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could use any number of very biblical terms, but he doesn't do that. He refers to God as the divine being. It's like he's choosing a very kind of open-ended, fairly generic term to refer to a supreme being because he knows that the people he's talking to, that that's all they really know about God. If he talked about God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Israel, the anointed one, or whatever, people wouldn't know what he was talking about. So he uses a term that he knows they're familiar with. Remember, they made this altar to an unknown God. He knows they have a concept of God. They believe God exists, but that's about all they know about Him. And so Paul is careful. He's not going to say anything that's going to confuse his audience divine being. Well, he does something similar in verse 31. He says, He has fixed a day <clears throat> on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Well, who is that man? We, we know who that man is. He's talking about Jesus. But Paul doesn't mention the name Jesus, nor does he use the word Christ or Messiah or, or anointed one. He, he just refers to this man That's a very carefully chosen term. He wants to get people's interest. Who is this man? If he talked about Christ, Messiah, again, these people wouldn't know what he's talking about. It would go right over their heads. So he's careful to not use language that would confuse. One more example. If you back up to verse 28, we talked about this a little bit last week. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I mean, very, I think this is just fascinating. so interesting that what Paul is doing here is quoting Greek poets. Not quoting the Old Testament, quoting artists, poets that he knows the people of Athens are familiar with. And this first line here in verse 28 is by a guy named Epimenides. Greek poet, ancient Greek poet. He was writing this poem to Zeus one of the the greatest of the gods in the Greek pantheon. And here's a stanza from this poem. Here's what it says by Epimenides. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high. The Cretans always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. For thou art not dead, thou art risen and alive forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. Paul was familiar with that poem. He'd read it. He knew these Athenians... They know this Epimenides. They're a big fan of Epimenides. I'm going to quote Epimenides to them, and that's going to get their attention. That's what he does. He takes that line and borrows it. But what Paul's doing is not saying that Zeus is a proper god to worship. What he's going to do is say, what you're looking to find from Zeus, I'm going to show you how you can only find it in Jesus. That's where he's going. But he's using the language that they know. He does the same thing at the end of verse 28. <clears throat> For we are indeed his offspring. That poet's name is eratus Another Greek poet. That's from a different, different poem, also written to Zeus. So I think what we have here is a, an example for us as Christians how it is appropriate, I think, for us to study our culture, to study popular culture, to pay attention to the music and the movies and the TV shows that people are watching. That, that's an appropriate thing to do. You want to do that carefully. You don't want to ingest that stuff um, without... Um, you know, being careful about that. But this is really an excellent way to get into conversations with people about the gospel when you can refer to cultural artifacts that people are familiar with. I mean, for example, you know, everybody knows about The Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, I know that's a really old movie, but everybody knows about it. And we know about Dorothy singing that song, Over the Rainbow. Uh, This place where my troubles melt away like lemon drops where all my dreams come true. She's longing for a perfect place. She's longing for a place when all troubles have been removed, when all sin is eradicated. She's longing for a perfect state of affairs. As Christians, we can say, you know what, Lori, Dorothy, we know where that place is. That place exists. There is a chance for you to go to a place like that. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. People who trust Jesus have this assurance and when Jesus comes again, he's going to, usher in this place over the rainbow. When Mick Jagger sings, I can't get no satisfaction, we can say to Mick Jagger, well, Mick, we know why you can't get no satisfaction. We have an account for that because you're looking for it in all the wrong places. But you want satisfaction, don't you, Mick? And actually, we can tell you how that can happen because you're made for a relationship with God and that's the only place you're going to find it. But at least Mick Jagger is saying, this is something I desire you talk about Mick Jagger, you talk about Dorothy and Wizard of Oz, people can identify with that. That's what Paul's doing. He's taking these poets that people can identify with and using them to get to the gospel. So that's kind of an example of a positive way to do this. By way of application, I want to suggest there's a negative way to do this too. <coughs> um, I, think, I think it's important for us as Christians that, that we're careful about the language we use, particularly when it comes to really churchy language, very pious phrases, kind of Christian lingo. You know, I know people, they come into the church, and after a year or two, they just start talking different. And in some respects, that's good. I mean, there's some ways that they used to talk that, you know, they don't need to be talking that way anymore. And there is a certain language that Christians should have. You know, that's appropriate. I understand that. I'm talking about... You know, phrases like prayer warrior, um, it's a God thing, PTL, hedge of protection, lift you up in prayer, I'm on fire for God, traveling mercies, you know, these kinds of things. Now, don't feel bad if you use those phrases. It's okay, I've used those phrases, I'm sure I will continue to use those phrases, but don't use those phrases when you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. <laughs> I, it's just those phrases are confusing. They're alienating. They're, con- they're, they're, they're distracting. I mean, imagine being dropped into a Star Trek convention. <laughs> and everybody's dressed up in their Star Trek garb. And they start talking about, you know, the Vulcan nerve pinch. And... The transporter and star date and all those things—you hear all this terminology. I mean, how do you feel in that situation? Assuming you're not a Trekkie, don't you feel confused? You feel like an outsider. You feel like you don't belong. Sometimes we Christians we can use those kinds of phrases that just kind of push people away more than bring bring them in. And I think that's what Paul is being careful about here. He's choosing his language carefully. So that's the fourth principle. The fifth principle, and the last one we'll deal with this morning, engage in reasoned persuasion. Engage in reasoned persuasion. Um, If you take seriously the principle about understanding what others believe using the perspectives cards or however you might want to do that, What is very likely to ensue is a conversation, a dialogue, maybe even a debate of some sort where you're going to be put in a position where you're going to have to use your reason to interact with a person because they're going to have questions. And you need to be prepared to do that. Paul was prepared. If you look at verse 17, when he gets to the marketplace, look what he does. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. He was prepared for an exchange of ideas. You can just imagine Paul just sitting out there for hours going back and forth with people talking about uh, the gospel. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing when he addresses the Areopagus, when he starts talking about the gospel and the Christian account of reality. He has in his mind what the people on the Areopagus believe, and as he gives his address, he's Confronting those false views that they have. He's interacting with them. He's reasoning with them. And he makes a number of very significant points that are a challenge to the worldview of these ancient religions. So we're just going to go through a few of these. Let me show you how this works. First of all, <clears throat> Paul makes this point that God is creator. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it And verse 26, he made from one man every nation. You see how he's making that point? God is creator. Why is he making that such a big deal? Because most people at this time believed in what's called polytheism. They believed in a whole bunch of gods, countless gods. They believed that there was a God who created the sun and a God who created the moon and a God who created the sea. And so Paul comes in and says, no, there's one God who created them all. The sun, the moon, the sea, the stars, the planets, all created by just one God. Now, we're used to hearing that. The people at that time were not used to that. That was a radical view, that was a brand new way of looking at things. But Paul's making that point, reasoning with them, interacting. You might remember last week we talked about the Stoic philosophers that are talked about there in verse 18. Well, Paul is also addressing their view. Because remember, the Stoics, they thought that God and creation were basically the same. That God was kind of, uh, there was no distinction between God and creation. And that he was kind of trapped in this world. And so, that's why God, or Paul says at the end of verse 24, that God is Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples made by man. God is not contained by buildings. He is transcendent. He is above The creation. He is distinct. He is almighty Lord over all the universe. There's a big difference between God and his creation. There is the creator and there is the creation, and there is a distinction. The Stoics didn't see that distinction. So Paul is saying you need to recognize that. The true God is above and beyond all creation. So he makes this point in verse 24. He also goes on to say that God is self sufficient. In verse 25, here's something really strange about the ancient religions. The ancient religions thought that the gods were needy and deficient. They thought that people could fill the needs of the gods by doing good things or offering certain sacrifices. And so the way people thought about it was that we can barter with God. I can give God something that he needs, then he'll give me something that I need. And we can have this kind of exchange of a relationship. Now, I know that probably all of you, myself included, have thought of God in that way, right? I'll do good things for God, and now he's got to do good things for me. But that's a pagan way of thinking about God. And what Paul says here is no, that's not the case. In verse 25, it's not that he's served by human hands as though he needed anything. What Paul is saying is that the true God, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is not a needy God. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need it. He has a right to demand it, but he doesn't need it. He's perfectly happy in himself. If God had never created anything, he'd be perfectly happy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all eternity. He doesn't need us, He's not lonely, he's not deficient, he's not lacking. But here's why this is such a wonderful thing to know, because that means that if you have a relationship with God, that means that all that God has done to have a relationship with us is not because of a need that he has, it's because of a desire that he has to be with you, to have a relationship with you. It's because he wants to be close to you. It's not because he wants to get something from you. It's because he wants to give something to you. And the thing that he wants to give you is himself in personal relationship. If God has needs, then you never really know, is God doing something for me just because he wants to get something back from me, or is he doing this for me? Have you ever gone to lunch with somebody and had a meal, and at the end of the lunch, the the guy says, "Uh, well, you know, I want to get now to... The reason really that we're meeting. Uh, Can you come over and help paint my house next weekend? You know, and you realize wait a minute, this whole thing has just been for you to get me to do something for you. That's very different than the person who gets together with you for lunch and at the end of the lunch he says, uh, I didn't really have any particularly good reason for getting together. I just wanted to hang out, I just wanted to be with you, just wanted to see you. See, that's, that's why God enters into relationship with us. He wants to give himself to us. He wants to be with us. wants to have relationship because he's self-sufficient, has no needs. That's the point Paul's making. Verse 26, God is sovereign. Now he's challenging the Epicurean view here. We talked about this last week. The Epicureans, they believe that God was so far away, so distant, that he had no connection whatsoever daily life on this earth, so far removed that He had no interest in our daily lives. Well, what does Paul say in verse 26? God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is so sovereign, so involved in our daily lives that He has determined exactly where you live. He has determined your address. Whether you live in a house or a condo or a dorm room, God has planned it that way. That's how interested he is in your everyday life. And Paul offers this as a contrast to this Epicurean view. And then the last thing Paul says here is that God is knowable. In verse 27, God has done all this that we should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Remember earlier, they had set up this altar to an unknown God. We can't know who God is. We can't know where He is. We can't know how to know him. What Paul is saying here is that God is right there. He's close to you. He's nearby. You can reach out and find Him. Just through faith in Jesus, you can have personal relationship and He'll walk with you and love you. He'll be your King, your Savior, your friend. You can be close to Him. He's not distant, inaccessible, but He's close. And so Paul makes this point in response to to the views of these Athenians. So these main points are made and they call to our own minds the kinds of questions that you and I might have to deal with. How might you and I have to reason with people in our culture? What kinds of questions and issues, what kinds of views might we have to um, have an interaction or exchange about? So we're just going to go through and consider uh, a few of these. Opportunities that you might have to reason with people as you're talking about the gospel. Here's something that people are very likely to say all religions are the same. I mean, you're going to get that before too long if you haven't already. All religions are the same. How do you reason with that? How, how do you respond to that? Well, this is really not that difficult to deal with because. All religions, by their own claims about themselves, are actually conflicting. There are so many conflicting truth claims among the various religions. Christianity says God is one in three persons. Islam says God is one but denies that God exists in three persons. You'll offend a Muslim by saying that God is triune. Hindus believe there's thousands of gods. So which of those is true? They're mutually exclusive. They can't all be true. They don't work together. There's contradictions there. And in fact, it's a little bit insulting, isn't it, to tell a Muslim your religion is just like Christianity? There's no difference? To tell a Christian your religion is basically just like Buddhism? Do you know that, Christian? There's really no difference between what you believe and what a Buddhist believes? If you're a committed Christian, that's going to strike you as very strange and it's potentially offensive. All religions are not the same. There's a guy named Stephen Prothero. Professor of religion, Boston University, written a lot of books. He's been on TV a lot, talks a lot about religion. Not a Christian, not an evangelical, describes himself as religiously confused. That's an honest man, right? And he's written a lot about this issue, and here's what he says about this notion that all religions are the same. He says, for more than a generation we have followed scholars and sages down the rabbit hole into a fantasy world in which all gods are one. The ideal of religious tolerance has morphed into the straitjacket of religious agreement, yet we know in our bones that the world's religions are different from one another. And this is not a Christian speaking, this is a scholar just looking at various religions and saying there's no way we can say they're all the same. Well, some people might also say um, we can't really know for certain. So how do you reason with that? I mean, why should I become a Christian? We can't know for certain that God exists. We can't know for certain that Jesus is resurrected. We can't have certainty about these things. Why would you commit yourself to something that you can't be certain of? So how do you reason with that? Well, I mean, let's just think of regular daily life. I mean, how many things can we really be certain of? And isn't it true that we make some very serious commitments in our lives in the absence of certainty? Every husband who's ever married a wife, every wife who's ever married a husband has done that in the absence of certainty. No one has certainty that this marriage is going to work. No one has certainty that this person is going to be the same person 20 years from now as he or she is now. When an employer hires an employee, there's no certainty that that's going to work out. When people come and choose a church and choose a pastor, there's no certainty that that pastor is going to be faithful and feed you well and shepherd you well. But you know where certainty comes from eventually? It comes as a result of commitment. When you commit yourself to a person, if you're in a good marriage, what happens is you commit yourself to the person and over the years your certainty about that person increases on the basis of your commitment. And God is a person, friends, and it works the same way. When you commit to God, commit yourself to Him and engage in relationship with Him, over the years your certainty will increase. But the commitment comes before certainty, not certainty before commitment. And People get that mixed up. They want the certainty, they won't commit. They'll never get the certainty. Commitment comes first. This is just daily life. How about our legal system? We tell a jury that you are to make a determination about whether a person is guilty of a crime and you need to do that with absolute certainty? Is that what we say? When the jury comes back to the court, we believe with absolute certainty this person is guilty? Is that what we ask? No. What's the phrase? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Because our legal system knows we can't expect certainty from people in issues like this. They can have a very strong degree of commitment Strong enough to be able to make a determination, but not certainty. So, um, this is not something that we should expect for people before they become Christians. How about sincerity is the most important thing? You'll hear this too. Doesn't matter what people believe. Doesn't matter what religion they commit themselves to. All that matters is whether they're sincere, whether they're really committed to their religion, whether they follow it with all their heart. That's all that matters. How do we reason with that? What do we say to that? Well, you know those guys that drove those planes into the buildings in New York City on 9-11? Don't you think they were sincere? are not they fully committed to their religion? They are probably more committed to their religion than most Christians. But does that mean the religion they were following is true? In the Old Testament, you have a lot of religions that practice child sacrifice, parents sacrificing their children In a sincere desire to be good adherents of their religion. Does sincerity have anything to do with truth? Are we gonna say that because these people were sincere, therefore their religion is legitimate? Of course not. Uh, How about um, people choose religion for emotional reasons? You'll hear this a lot too. The reason people believe in God is because they're looking for something to make sense of their miserable lives. They, they want meaning, so they make up a reason to have meaning. They want to think there's an afterlife, so they make up God and make up heaven, and that just enables them to get through life. This makes life tolerable for them. People believe in God for emotional reasons. How do you reason with that? Well, here's one way you could do this. You could say, um, maybe that's true, but could it apply equally to people who reject religion? Isn't it true that people might reject religion for emotional reasons? That people don't want to think that they're going to be responsible to a God? They don't want to think that they're going to be called to account for their deeds? They don't want to think that someone else is the captain of their destiny? They don't want to give up their cherished sins and rebellion? Could that not be a reason why people disbelieve in God? Emotional reasons. In fact, Aldous Huxley admits it. He said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I was able without much difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Do you see what he's saying? I want to just continue doing what I want to do, and if I come up with a worldview that says everything is meaningless, then I can do it. And it wasn't very hard for him to find a way to do that so this cuts both ways well one last thing you might hear people say my mistakes and sins are too great I'm too bad I'm too evil you don't know the things that I've done you don't know the shame I've carried you don't know about my abortion you don't know about my homosexual lifestyle you don't know about the money that I've stolen you don't know about my lies and deceit how can God save me? How do you reason with that? Well, you could say, friend, really, are you telling me that God is not merciful enough to save you, that God is not mighty enough to deal with your sins? Are you saying that for some way that you are too much for Almighty God to handle, is that what you're saying? Do you see how you're minimizing the love and mercy and grace of God by saying that somehow you're beyond the reach of God in this situation? And Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the chief, the most serious offender. And yet I am the recipient of grace through Christ. There is nobody beyond the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So these are just some examples of how you can reason with people. You can think of many other questions, I'm sure, but let me clarify here as we bring this to a close that this is not, this is not an easy thing, reasoning with people in this way. Um, as you talk with people and as you get into these discussions, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be plenty of situations where you're not going to know the answers, Uh, You're going to make plenty of arguments, and they are not going to be perceived as convincing or persuasive, and there are probably going to be times when you're going to get into these discussions, and at the end, you're just going to feel like you pushed people farther away than brought them close. I mean, that's very likely to happen. You're going to have some of these encounters, and you're just going to think, what was accomplished in that exchange? And I think that's exactly what happened, perhaps, with Paul. Because if you look at verse 32, when Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, what do they do? They mock him. They shut him down. We're done with you, Paul. We're finished. We're not listening to you anymore. Paul's response, verse 33, he went out from their midst. He said, okay, that's it. Walked out. How did Paul feel at that point, do you think? Did I accomplish anything in that discussion? Was that really worth my time? All that time I put into thinking about that address, and they just shut me down and now I'm gone. Well, look at verse 34. Wonderful verse. Some men joined him and believed. There there were a couple, there were a few, there were some that God reached through this difficult encounter. And friends, when you're talking with people about the gospel, you're sharing the gospel, you're reasoning with people, and you're feeling like a total failure, you're feeling like you're not making any sense at all, never discount what God might be doing in that situation. Personally, where I find the most difficulty talking to others about the gospel is in family issues, talking to the people closest to me, sisters, mother, father, particularly my dad. I uh, just found it very difficult to talk with my dad about spiritual things. And I don't know if my dad is a Christian. Um, not sure if he believed. Um, and quite frankly, I think I did a really poor job of talking to him about the gospel. I had opportunities, and I passed him up. I looked the other way. It was uncomfortable. I didn't, I didn't want to talk with him about that. When I did talk to him, he just seemed confused. I remember one time talking to him. He was sitting in his chair. And I was talking to him about the gospel, and he kind of squinted his eyes and his face got all kind of anguish. He kind of shook his head like this is just confusing me. I just felt like I totally frustrated him. I think I pushed him farther away than brought him close. Well, by God's grace, I was able to get to him a copy of this book, Anchor for the Soul, which is a very clear, basic description of the gospel. By God's grace, I was able to get this in his hands before he died. And after he died, I remember going into the condo and seeing his empty chair there where I had that conversation. Went to the chair, looked at his reading table right next to the chair, and there was this book. And I opened it up, and there's a prayer here at the beginning. It says, um, Oh God, I want to know you. If you are really there, Please reveal yourself to me. Show me the truth about myself. Open my eyes and create faith in my heart. Give me the gift of an open mind to receive your faith, your truth. Speak to me through what I read that I may come to know you. Grant that my deepest questions may be answered with your truth. Help me to seek you with all my heart. And right next to that prayer was his initials and a date. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but it gives me hope that Maybe one day I'll see my dad in glory. Even as badly as I presented the gospel to him. So friends, it's always worth it to talk to people about the gospel. And I know you don't feel equipped. And I know this seems intimidating. But give it a try and trust God to do mighty things. He will. He uses the worst of efforts to save sinners. So let's be bold in talking about Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for... Acts 17, and for all the lessons we learned from this, Father, thank you for teaching us. Help us to be eager to talk about the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.